The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning. If I have not had a chance to greet you yet, my name is Robert Barra, and I am the Episcopal Campus Chaplain for ASU Polytechnic way, way out in East Mesa, and now also ASU downtown. And I want to start by thanking you for the warm reception that I have received here. Thank you so much. I'd like to give you a little bit of an update and a little bit of an introduction into campus ministry. The semester at Arizona State University has come to an end. This past week was finals week. Friday, I saw off nearly all of my students from the Polytechnic campus, and on all four campuses, there was a collective sigh of relief. Folks are leaving. It turns out into a little bit of a ghost town. And I know that we have at least three folks from ASU who are graduating this coming week who are affiliated with this congregation. Two of them are doctoral students, and wow, the work that goes into that is amazing. Over the course of the summer, we'll be preparing to launch a ministry at the downtown campus just two blocks south of us. Um, But I'm a little bit curious. Who here has ever been involved in campus ministry as either a student or a leader? Oh, that's a lot of you. That is awesome. I'm going to want to talk with y'all at some point. Come see me at some point. An interesting element of our reading from Acts is the inclusion of a rather special list. We are told that those who have been baptized devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. This is the earliest listing of what came to be called the marks of the church, characteristics beyond the confession of Jesus as Lord that identified the church as the church. These four elements, the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayers, recognizing these elements are how we recognize the church. According to these marks and in other ways, campus ministry is similar to the life of the parish. We gather to do these four things. We are not simply the future of the church. We are the church right now. We have gifts to offer the diverse community of faith. Just as we receive the gifts we are given by the multitude of communities and ministries that make up the larger body of Christ. So as I talk about campus ministry, I ask that you consider doing the same translation I do in my mind. When I say campus ministry, what I really mean is church. That being said, there are differences. One major difference is community turnover. The nature of a student's life and time at school means that the campus ministry, uh, the population may change drastically year to year and will probably be a completely new group of people within four years. New individuals bring new gifts, new concerns, new energy around a part of God's work in the world. And so a campus ministry is frequently trying to discern who they are and how to respond to God's call in their time and place. While this leads to some instability, campus ministry also becomes an incubator for new ideas new practices, and new leaders, all geared toward reaching others in effective ways and proclaiming Christ in ways that can be heard by each new generation. 
And through all of this, campus ministry is the work of the rest of the church. We point to Christ, who is the shepherd, the gate, the way who offers to all abundant life. And here we might need to be careful. Our passage from the Gospel of John may hit our ears as quite exclusive, as though Jesus is the divine bouncer ready to slam doors and gates shut on us. You're not on the list. But the theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, while he was imprisoned by the Nazis in Germany, once noted an odd advantage to celebrating Easter from a prison cell. He said that you become entirely aware that the door is the only way out. More than that, the door of a cell can only be opened from the outside. So when Jesus speaks of saving those who pass through the door, he has rescue in mind. This is a divine jailbreak. Jesus did not come to simply be another barrier. Those who find that door are saved not only from the phony shepherds on the outside aggressively seeking their soul, they're also saved from a potentially worse enemy on the inside, themselves. Curious, who here is sometimes your own worst enemy and hardest critic? That sound familiar? Now life obviously, is good and desirable and important, but how much more so then is abundant life, the chance to not merely persist but to thrive, to not simply exist but flourish, to have a sense of meaning and purpose and fulfillment, to know and be known, to accept others and be accepted ourselves. The church contributes to this mission in at least two ways. One is to assist in connecting people to Christ through whom we find our purpose and destiny, our life's work as we strive to reach the fullness for which we were created. Another is to teach the discernment to tell the difference between that which brings life and that which contributes to death, destruction, and oppression. To point to Christ as the way to abundant life will always mean to point away from something else. David Luce, who is a Lutheran preacher and biblical scholar, notes that we need to reclaim the responsibility to name how often we have been cheated, or as knowing participants in the charade, perhaps we should say cheated ourselves by settling for something less than abundant life. And I know that in my ministry, I'm often confronting elements of both American culture and Christian culture that undermine Christ's promises of abundant life. And there are so many ways that it's undermined. As a whole, American culture trains us to find the will to power over others incredibly seductive. We operate according to premises and mindsets of scarcity. We scramble for our piece of the pie in hopes that someone does not beat us to it. We are taught that our value as a person lies in our achievement, our ability to accumulate prestige, power, and possessions. These counter-narratives to our faith have such power that our relationship to God may be relegated to a private concern, an identity best hidden lest we become too weird in the eyes of others. Our identity in Christ is decentered from being our standard for evaluating the life choices that we are handed and the life choices that we hand others. In these cases, our faith becomes, at best, a therapeutic life jacket, the last straw that we may cling to when all other promises and stories we tell fall short of the reality we experience. 
In religious life, false narratives and narratives of scarcity also plague us. We may say that we understand that God loves us, but we may find ourselves in times of trouble wondering if we did something wrong or thinking that if we perhaps did something good, maybe God will love us more, as though there is never enough love. We work to earn what is freely given by God, seeing our value through our own definitions of goodness and striving instead of seeing ourselves as the beloved of God because God simply says it is so. We may even be told from other Christians that our status in God's eyes is constantly in jeopardy, turning our relationship to God into little more than an exhausting sin management plan. Then there are also many who experience Christian community as abusive, and so they want nothing to do with harming others in God's name, and God bless them for that. Here's an example of what I mean. I was once talking to a student who is visibly on edge and uncomfortable talking to me. And by the way, never before have I been so ignored so hard from three feet away until I put this collar on and started walking around a college campus. (laughs) But things break loose when you get to about 15 minutes into a conversation. And when we passed the 20-minute mark, two issues came up that had to be addressed. The first was that I had to show the student that one could believe in evolution and still, with integrity, call himself Christian. The second issue is that I had to reassure the student that Christianity does not look upon psychiatric medication as a weakness or an admission of doubt in the power of prayer. I had to address the issue of evolution because of the narrative that both more secular factions and fundamentalist Christians espouse that one must either believe in a particularly narrow interpretation of sacred text or scrap belief in a transcendent being altogether. But abundant life means so much more than narrow scripture interpretation. Seeking abundant life means we try to discern between the false choices we are given by our society and seek the truth instead. The student also experienced some forms of Christianity, which espouses mental illness as something out of which one could simply believe oneself out of. There are communities who teach this, even as they watch their members suffer, and regardless of the vast body of evidence. But abundant life is not about the sanctioning and sanctifying of the suffering of others in the name of a theological or doctrinal purity. Jesus had some very unkind things to say about religious leaders who tie such heavy burdens onto the spiritual lives of others. Abundant life is instead that which follows our Savior's example and promotes healing and wholeness of the person who has inherent dignity in body, mind, and spirit, given by virtue of being created in the image of our God. In the course of the conversation, the student went from experiencing discomfort and fear about what I would say or how I would react to his story to experiencing the hope that a community could bring. And this is what abundant life does. It flips the script of scarcity, be it scarcity of resources or scarcity of choice or scarcity of grace into the possibility of an opportunity where ways seem closed, new paths open, and the good shepherd guides us into unknown territory and faith. 
Abundant life seeks the fullness of human potential even to life after death. Abundant life comes from communion with a God and a community vested in the flourishing of all of its members. And it shows forth in communities as hope and joy and expectation. This work of naming and confronting that which diminishes life is the work that needs to be done. As is the work of evangelism, the work of showing and proclaiming the good news of abundant life to those who find themselves constricted by scarcity and locked up by rules that others put upon them. For the church is not in the business of merely surviving. We have our sights set on loftier heights. We proclaim fullness of life and more. We attest to the reality of resurrection and for all the gloom and doom that one might hear about the life expectancy of the Episcopal Church, new life does spring forth. I'd like to end with an invitation. If you would like to know more about where new life is springing forth in campus ministry, you are welcome to come and see. If young adult spirituality is something you might have an interest in, let's have that conversation. And in all cases, may you continue to proclaim abundant life possible with God. And may you see God's work in the midst of our communities. Amen.